I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Manil Suri, is a distinguished professor of mathematics at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and is also the author of three internationally acclaimed novels set in his native India, The Death of Vishnu, The Age of Shiva, and The City of Devi, which have been translated into 27 languages and have won multiple literary awards. As a contributing opinion writer at the New York Times, he has written several widely read pieces on mathematics, India, and LGBTQ issues. His recently published book, which marshals his talent for storytelling and the sharing of his love for mathematics, is entitled The Big Bang of Numbers, How to Build the Universe Using Only Math, and is the subject of today's interview. So if I can call you Manil, yes. welcome to Delving In. Thank you. Great to be here. So let's start with an overview of the book. You, you use an ingenious and audacious literary device through which to foster math appreciation. You invite the reader to play God. That's right. To become the creator of the universe using only numbers. To be a bit more precise, the conceptual planning of the universe is all with numbers, while the physical creation itself is subcontracted to a mostly agreeable sidekick you decide to call nature. Exactly. So how did you come up with this idea? Well, it was through trial and error. I kind of... Uh, <laughs> Just like God. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but only in, a, in the sense of actually trying to make the narrative work, where I dove into this idea of trying to create the universe and then had many problems along the way and had to really solve each problem. And the one problem that it's very hard to get around is that mathematics by itself isn't going to be able to give you bricks and mortar. You're going to have to have some sort of other agency that can actually construct something physical. So that's where the idea of using nature as a contractor, as a subcontractor, came up. And, and that speaks to the subtitle of your book. You don't talk about how to create the universe, it's how to build. Yeah, and I'm hoping that saying build, you know, you can kind of... Uh, do a little uh, dance through and sort of get away with uh, design. It's like design building. And uh, I give several examples of ancient kings who obviously did not use hammers and chisels, but built things in the sense that they contracted them out, designed them, and then figured out who's going to actually put in the bricks and mortar. And I love how agnostic you are about math, whether it's invented or discovered. And you also talk about the unfolding universe with patterns arising maybe spontaneously out of randomness or maybe through design by a supreme being. I sort of get a, a hint that maybe you're on the first side of things, but you're agnostic enough in the book to allow for either side, a reader of either side to appreciate it. Yeah, with any book, you don't want to offend your potential readers. So you don't want to chase away people who might uh, you know, not agree with you. And I think mathematicians in particular are at least as far as their subject goes, very agnostic. Mathematics by itself is very abstract, even though it can be applied to various settings. It doesn't really say anything by itself of the physical world that we live in. And so I myself feel that you know, to propound this theory that math is the root of everything, you then have to also take into account how that can be adapted to people's beliefs. Yeah, you also use another charming and disarming literary device 
which hopefully won't offend Catholics, speaking of possibly offending, and that is an imaginary and ongoing conversation throughout the book with the Pope. <laughs> I thought that was really something. Uh, there's a pretty interesting backstory to that, isn't there? Yes, uh, the story is that I wrote an article in the New York Times, an opinion piece, which was called How to Fall in Love with Math. The main idea was that mathematics is more about ideas rather than calculation. People always just say, oh, math is all about arithmetic or getting square roots right and so on. But it's really about what big ideas fashion everything, essentially. And so this article did very well. Uh, it started climbing up the charts and became the most emailed for the day. Uh, lots of comments and the Times actually shut that down because there were too many. And then as the week progressed, it felt like I saw it climb up. Uh, most email for the week, and it came to number four, and then number three, and then number two, and I was all poised to be the most email for the week when the Pope started making all these statements about abortion and homosexuality and so on, very controversial stuff, and that vaulted him clear over me, and he landed in the number one spot. And, you know, you might say that I've always had a little bit of grudge for that. Uh, that's not quite true. But that's how the Pope came in. And uh, I say in my book that I would actually send him a copy, which I did. And I got a letter back, an actual letter back, not from him, but from someone in his organization. And I think it said something to the effect that the Pope has received my book. He's blessing me. He's blessing the book, uh, which means there's not going to be a lawsuit, uh, which is good. <laughs> right. <laughs> I don't think uh, the Pope could sue anyone uh so easily because he's such a public figure. Yeah, so I think I you're protected. You're protected anyway. Yeah, so. but, but I'm pretty good to him. I, you know, I, I give him very nice thoughts to think. Yeah, there's nothing really disrespectful, but it just uh, the familiarity is is very charming. I mean, it's all a, a, a pretense, of course, but it's still a lot of fun. Well, I was hoping that he would say, "Oh, I love this. Come and meet me." But, <laughs> but you know, that hasn't happened yet. So I'm wondering if in our conversation we could do something different than talk about the widespread prevalence of math aversion and even math phobia, which has its roots in the overemphasis on calculation, as you mentioned, rather than conceptual understanding. Why don't we instead give a taste of, of your book and what it's like to grapple with mathematical concepts, starting with the beginning of your creation story? Even though the format of your book with seven sections reminiscent of the creation story that begins the Hebrew Bible seems to assume a monotheistic God... The ongoing conversation between you and the reader implies multiple beings casually conversing about their creation plans, perhaps a nod to your Hindu background, with all its complexities and ambiguities. You don't say so in your book, but there's an implication that somehow, even before numbers, there's language, and with it, the potential for making distinctions. So this is always a question of where you take something in terms of what was there before, and... Obviously, I can't write a book about anything if I don't have language. And in mathematics, mathematicians, I feel, have the right handle on this, where you take things back to a certain point, and then you say, okay, I'm not going to try and simplify things anymore. I'm not going to try and find basic components anymore, or constituents, because I have to assume something to start with. And so they list a bunch of axioms or assumptions. And so in the same sense, I guess I didn't do this explicitly, but there are some implicit axioms in this whole project. And one of them is that there's going to be someone who's doing this thought experiment, something, someone who's thinking about it, something, someone who has language to be able to put all these thoughts into words. 
Well, it dovetails very nicely with the Hebrew creation story, which starts with the language, let there be light, and there's light. So it's, it starts with words. Yeah, uh, there's, there's something kind of interesting about this. There's an author named Rotman who asked about uh, mathematical proofs where you always say, okay, take X and then divide it by two and then square it and so on. And it's never clear whom these instructions are going out to. Are they going out to the reader or is there somebody else out there? So this idea of how things are created, uh, including how mathematics is created, there is something implicit, some sort of understanding, which is never really defined, I feel. So let's get started and give a taste of your book. We're not going to get through the whole thing, obviously, because it's a big job to create the universe. I know. And we only have an hour. Yeah. So you, you start with nothingness or nothing. How do you get to anything from nothing? And I think that's, that's a great question. As a mathematician, I'm sure it's a great question. And it also reminds me of some physicists who say that everything came out of nothing. But what's, what's the, the trick? How do, how do you get something out of nothing? Well, that's it. There has to be a trick. Uh, you can't do it otherwise. So in physics, you know, there's a singularity of some sort from which everything emerges. In religion, there is a supreme being and he or she creates everything. In mathematics, we start with something much simpler where we take nothing to be a mathematical construct called the empty set. And it's essentially a technicality, a technical way of looking at nothing. But if you, or once you accept the fact that such an entity exists, a set that contains nothing, then you've actually done something which is a kind of slate of hand. You've actually gone from nothing to something because you now have that empty set. So you have something. Yeah, and empty sets are, are I think, probably familiar to most people. I mean, empty set could be a set with impossible things, so therefore they're not in there. Yeah, like the set of truthful politicians, for example. Right, right. That letter uh, is your best example. Right. <laughs> Um, or it could be the set of species that have members of a species that no longer exist, which would be a sad example. Exactly. So you get up with this, you, get, you, you start with this, and then you equate that, the fact that you have a set of any sort, with the successor of zero, that is with the number one, because you have one thing now, which is this empty set. It seems in order to make an empty set, or any set at all, for, when there haven't been any before, you have to be willing to make a distinction. And I'm not sure if you talk about this so much in your book, but making any kind of distinction allows something to be created. If it's all undifferentiated at first, then there's nothing to talk about. Right. That's where technically mathematicians conveniently have an axiom which says there exists an empty set. So, so they are also summoning existence or creation. They're summoning this empty set into existence in some sense. As I said, it is a magic trick. You start with this axiom that there exists an empty set, and then from that you can build one. And then once you have zero and one, then you can build two, because counting those, you now have two numbers. Wait, slow, slow down a bit. So how do you get from zero to one? Once you have an empty set, then you have one thing. You have one thing, and then to get to the... So that's zero is the member of the set, right? Once you have the empty set, that is the number zero. You you actually say that that's zero. Then what you do is you create a set containing zero or containing the empty set. So now you have something that is different from what you had before. Before you had the empty set, now you have a set containing the empty set. And so that's not the same. 
So you have something that's different from zero, and that's what you call one. Okay, and then you keep doing that over and over again, and you create all the counting numbers by doing that. Yes, and it's it's like, you know, once you have any set, you can form its successor. Again, that's you technically need an axiom, an assumption to be able to do that. Also, in terms of getting all the counting numbers, in the book I have basically called this process the Big Bang of Numbers, where starting with zero, you get one, then two, then three, and you know there's this explosion and you get all the numbers. In mathematics, you would have to again have an axiom saying that you can repeat this an infinite number of times. So there's always technicalities lurking around. And at least for this book, I'm trying to steer a path where the reader can follow along without being bogged down by those technicalities. Because let, let the mathematicians bear the guilt for that. And, you know, they've certainly done a lot in terms of trying to hammer this all out. I'd like to quote from your book because uh, it, your book is not only about math, there's a kind of philosophical quality to it and sometimes the digressions, but they're really beautiful. So here's one of them from this phase of the book. The ability to compare, however, is a double-edged sword. And, and, and that comes after you discuss how not only do you have counting, but you can also compare a number in the counting numbers one to the other and, and come up with the idea of numbers being larger or smaller, for instance. So you write, the ability to compare, however, is a double-edged sword. Once you possess it, the idea of inequality is born. This is a notion that will mesmerize humans, once they appear, in droves. The desire to best will become one of the driving obsessions of civilization, unleashing monstrous inequities in your world, inequities that could arguably be traced back to and blamed on numbers, so much so that perhaps the story of Adam and Eve should be rewritten. Perhaps it was the forbidden tree of numeracy, not knowledge, that got them banished from Eden. Perhaps the serpent's offering was a zero, not an apple. So, you know, mathematicians are always looking for some way to gain attention. So we are ready to take on all the problems that have risen out of inequality. We, we created them, I guess. So that's what I'll say. But there's something charming and uh, illustrative, I think, about looking at the philosophical implications of numbers. And you do, you do that right there. And, and also, I think that numbers come up in terms of language more than we realize. You know, when any anytime we say one day or something like that, or a day or an hour, we're actually bringing up the fact that we have this concept called one. And so, you know, more or less, big, small, they're all related to these inequalities that you just mentioned. Yeah, and then in a fuzzier sort of way, uh, what's better? Who's who's better? Who's stronger? Who's taller? Who's you know? Some th some of these things are easily measured. Some of them not, but they imply some kind of measurement, even if we don't have the the measuring stick. Right. So, in a marvelous stroke of a, of personification, you, you depict numbers themselves as playful, adventurous, and restless, eager for adventure. <laughs> they're, they're kind of like your little friends in this book ever rambunctious, they combine with one another, almost before they realize that they stumble from addition to subtraction and then to multiplication. And I just love the way you depict that, you know, that these numbers are all kind of living beings. Yeah, and again, it was a way to do two things. One is to be able to talk about things like addition and subtraction and multiplication, which 
we've all seen so many times and it's been drilled into our heads as kids. And is there a way to talk about these activities in a new way? And the second thing is to bring out the idea that math is quite playful. It's often called a game by mathematicians, though, and not by non-mathematicians. And so how do you get in that idea of playfulness? And the solution is, you know, have these numbers interact with each other and play games. And what games would numbers play? Well, they would add to each other, multiply, subtract, divide, and they would get into all sorts of trouble doing that. Yeah, I remember in high school in my senior year, my, one of my favorite classes was in, in uh, modern algebra, where you're explicitly invited to play games with numbers by inventing different rules than we usually use for either, even arithmetic. So for instance, uh, a ring instead of a line, instead of a number line, a number ring, when you reach a certain number, you go back to the beginning. And, and I'm realizing now that that's really how we tell time with the clock. You know, after 12 comes one again, it doesn't go to 13 unless you're in Europe. <laughs> but even then, it goes from 24 back to one. And then after you play with it, it's like, what would happen if you multiply or divide or, you know, w with this different system and sort of treating math as, as a, not only a game, but a changeable game. Exactly. Uh, each time you hear someone say that two plus two is always equal to four, well, that's fine, except that on a clock, uh, six plus six is not equal to, or let's say seven plus seven is not equal to 14. It's equal to two. And so you can have different rules uh, that may not even make sense, but then might make sense in a particular application. And so that's the way mathematicians play. They, they make up their own rules. They make up rules that make some sense, but then see what can be produced or deduced from those rules. And not worry about whether they're applicable to reality. Exactly. That's uh, something that the mathematician G.H. Hardy, who wrote A Mathematician's Apology, always said that he actually said that the pure mathematician who makes up these rules is someone who can create uh, his or her own worlds, own universes. And he said he actually pitied the people who had to work with the universe that we are given, like applied mathematicians or physicists, because they're constantly hampered by the constraints that reality puts on them. And yet, sometimes these weird number systems become applicable, and, and you go into that later with imaginary numbers. So I, I just want to quote one more time from your book, and this is a, another literary device that you use that I just is, I found so charming. You, you speak to the reader as your co-creator, and you, and you t tell the reader after they've invented the counting numbers, you're doing rather well for yourself for someone who's just delivered a litter that's countless. <laughs> Even God, if given credit for every being that's ever existed, may have had only a finite number of offspring. <laughs> to top it off, your feat of conception was clearly immaculate. As creator, you should be pretty pleased with yourself. And it's true. Like, if you think about you know, the number of people that have been born on this planet, that is going to be finite through time. So what we've done with the numbers is in one stroke exceeded that number made an infinite set. And this is something that comes up later, you know, the whole idea of infinity. Is it something that we just can conceive or is there actually some physical instance where we actually experience infinity? I know we're a little bit hampered being on the radio that you can't show graphics, but I would like to talk about how these rambunctious numbers expanded their ranks 
one time after the other. And let's talk a little bit about how that happened. So after the counting numbers, what are the first surprises, the first maybe couple of surprises, and how did they come about? So the first thing is that the counting numbers, one, two, three, four, including zero, uh, can add each other, can add to each other, can multiply each other, and they always end up with another number that is also a counting number. But then they invent a new game, which is subtraction, because they know that four plus two is equal to six, so six minus two will be equal to four. So they kind of merrily start playing that game. And then someone has the bright idea of saying, well, if I can subtract two from six, why can't I subtract six from two instead? And they try that and they get stuck. And suddenly there's disasters all around. And probably lots of arguments between them too. Yeah, right. These numbers are trying to play this game and they keep getting stuck. And so the only way to unstick them is to create a whole bunch of new numbers. And these are going to be the negatives, the negative whole numbers. And so that's what expands the set. And now suddenly you have numbers that can play all these games, including subtraction. But then somebody discovers division. They try to do undo multiplication and they discover division. And that's fine as long as you're dividing 6 by 3, you get 2. But try dividing 3 by 6. And again, they get stuck. And this one, this one is even worse because they're really rammed into each other, I guess. They finally figure out, hey, we need to create fractions. And that's when the set of numbers expands once more into all the uh, rational numbers, as they are called. And then, you know, there are more games that follow with square roots and so on, and that creates even more numbers. So do you ever get worried for your numbers that they're going to get too crowded and maybe start fighting? Well, they're already fighting. So it's a question of trying to put them in order. You know, they're always so mixed up and jumbled and everything. And that's what actually leads to day two, where you start thinking about, hey, can I arrange these numbers in an orderly fashion? Can I give them condo units so they have some peace and quiet to themselves? And that's when you start building the number line, where you can actually put these numbers in order and have each number have its own unit. Each number has its own unit, and yet you keep finding numbers in between. Yes. If you look at half and uh, one-third, there's going to be a whole bunch of numbers in between. The other problem that arises is when we were looking at square roots, we came across the problem of taking the square root of a negative number. And, you know, by just thinking of all numbers being equal, if uh, 4 has a square root, minus 4 should also have a square root. It's only fair. It's only fair. And uh, that's how you come up with imaginary numbers, which is a terrible name in a way because it makes them sound like, you know, these numbers don't exist. But remember that all numbers are constructs. They are uh, ideas. And in that sense, the square root of minus 1 which is often called the imaginary unit, or I, is a perfectly reasonable number. It has as much claim to existence as plus one does. And you end up with these imaginary numbers, which add themselves to real numbers, and you end up with a whole bunch of numbers, which, if you want to really put them in order, you need to not only think of a straight line, but you need to think of a whole plane now. And that's what actually drives us into two dimensions. And, and one of the reasons for that is that you can't really compare i to any other number because it's in a different dimension, sort of. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's like the real numbers, uh, the numbers like one, two, three, one half, four, and so on. They have what is called an ordering relationship. You can order them. If you take any two numbers, they're either equal or one is larger than the other, or the other one is larger than the first one. When you start comparing imaginary numbers with real numbers, there's really no such ordering. You can't say the square root of minus one is that bigger than the square root of plus one or smaller. Can't do that. And so that's why you have to give them their own dimension. Which at one point in your book, you suggest uh, two axes, an x-axis and a y-axis. But you don't call it that at first. You call it the, you know, the, the real number axis going uh, horizontally, let's say, and the imaginary axis going vertically. And then they get bumped. It's such a tragedy. I mean, the imaginaries you know, had their own housing units, is the way you put it, and, and they get expelled. Why, why do they get expelled? Well, first of all, uh, the reason I didn't call them X and Y is that we hadn't come to algebra yet, which is day three. And they get expelled just because what happens is that there's also a third dimension that eventually we end up creating. And once you have a third dimension, then it's unclear how to actually take a point in that 3D space and attach a number to it. The complex numbers can only work with points that are on a two-dimensional plane. They don't have any way of trying to colonize three dimensions. And if anyone has uh, looked at coordinates, you know, you can have the coordinates of a point which had three real numbers. That turns out to be a much more successful idea. And trying to clear out everything, trying to, trying to attach coordinates to every point, the only way to do that is to clear the complexes out of the two-dimensional plane. So that's a very, very sad and uh, tragic part of the book, obviously. Oh, absolutely. Really, it's a tearjerker at that point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so what, one thing that was really amazing to me is when you come to the imaginary numbers, then it stops the creation of the numbers, not of number systems and number operations and things like that, but the numbers themselves. That's the last step, the last stage. And I, I, I found myself longing for, well, let's find the next class of numbers. There are actually other classes of numbers, but they are much less common. Uh, okay. there's, there's something called the quaternions, which uh, come up in certain physics uh, applications. The complex numbers have a real and an imaginary part. The quaternions have four parts to them, but they are really not that well known. And there's nothing with three parts. And that's why it's, it's like a jump from two to four. So it doesn't really fit into this narrative. Right. And you only had so many pages with which to create the universe, so you had to stop somewhere. Right, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about the irrationals, the uh, the etymology of that word. It's sort of interesting to call them irrational. And could you talk also about the grief it brought to the Greeks uh, with its introduction of randomness, really? To the Greeks, uh, I'm trying to... Well, didn't the Greeks, didn't the, uh, was, I don't know if it was Pythagoras to realize the square root of two was irrational? Oh, yes. So as the tale goes, Pythagoras, one of his disciples, came up with a proof, more or less, that showed that if you have a square with side one, then the diagonal could not be a rational number. And we know that the diagonal has to be the square root of two. And supposedly, the tale goes that Pythagoras 
who very much believed that the entire universe could be described just by ratios of whole numbers, that is, by rational numbers or fractions, was so upset that he had this disciple drowned as a result. What, you mean, you mean he, got, he got murdered? Executed? Yes, that's, that's what the tale is, and you can find it in many places. So math can be very serious. It can be. Uh, Pythagoras had some pretty strict rules. He had a brotherhood and people who were in it, uh, and then that included women, incidentally, uh, were not allowed to talk about what they knew about their mathematics to the outside world. And there are other tales of uh, people being slain because they had violated that rule. It had a kind of quasi-religious quality to it, his uh, society. Exactly. And uh, and you weren't allowed to eat beans. They gave you gas. So <laughs> it's true. I'm not making this up. I'm not sure where that ties in. So I know that they, they also were very enamored of music because of the mathematical relationships between notes. Exactly. And I think it was only discovered after the Greeks that if you take a 12-tone scale and you evenly divide it, the it, you get an irrational number. It's, I believe, the 12th root of 2 or related to the 12th root of 2. And so for that reason, well, and partly for that reason, a, a well-tempered uh, piano, a piano that has ex exactly evenly divided notes, is not completely in tune. So like a, you can't, if you have a perfectly tuned third, let's say, and try to go up toward an octave, you never get there. You can't get to an octave using purely, uh, absolutely in tune intervals. But the, it's close enough that, you know, most people can't hear it. Uh, but there have been pieces written where all the notes are perfectly in tune except for the last interval. And the last, last interval is called a wolf tone because it sounds so bad. So that's, that reminds me of the way that we have a leap here because it's not exactly 365 days. There are uh, accounts that somehow this was used by the ancient Egyptians, people who knew mathematics that could somehow use this knowledge and make better, better predictions, and that showed how math was power in a way. Uh, again, I'm not sure if that's true. So I'm wondering, in your book, you have day true being geometry, and, and that comes before day three algebra. I mean, did you go through these the, this order because that's the way it was developed in history? Not exactly. I, I had to think about which would come first. Uh, would I want to make algebra first? Because you could conceivably start talking about numbers in terms of letters. Uh, and then it just seemed to make much more sense in terms of development that you put geometry first. And I do believe that that's the way people learn the subject as well, that we kind of take arithmetic first in school, and then I think you're, you're always subjected to at least some geometry, uh, at least I was, and algebra comes a little later. In terms of actual development, in terms of the history of math, uh, I think that would conform with the way that algebra actually had its uh, big heyday, I think, in the... Basically, in the Renaissance, people were looking at equations that they were trying to factor, trying to find how many roots such equations had. So a lot of that development came after 1000 AD. Although there were several developments that came in other parts of the world before. So, so this is a problem with history. If you look at the history of math, everything is kind of jumbled together, and you can't really draw a straight line and say, uh, this line starts at arithmetic, goes through geometry, and then comes to algebra. And that's one of the things I was trying to do with this kind of narrative, like really show 
how each subject kind of develops from the previous one instead of having them all scrambled together. Yeah, it makes for a much more coherent uh, narrative and it makes uh, the reader as, as God to feel much more in control. Right, yes. So, and then with day four, you get into really wondrous territory with patterns, curves, symmetry, and its excess, the golden ratio, fractals, spirals, principles of beauty, all sorts of stuff. It's the, the nature part of the, the contractor nature seems to be going to town in chapter four. And you introduced a, a concept of uh, nature's, you don't call it efficiency, you call it laziness. Right. <laughs> Could you talk about that? I mean, how is nature lazy in a mathematical sense? So this this whole section of day four is where you start looking at patterns. And mathematics is often called the study of patterns. And I'm sort of putting in symmetry in there as well. And if you think about symmetry, one of the things it allows you to do is, let's say you're drawing a square, you could draw just a quarter of the of the square and then just reproduce it uh, so that you get you know, the other half and then flip it over an axis and you'll get the whole square. This is a sort of symmetry that is found in other shapes as well. And each time you have a symmetry, you can think about the smallest part, which is distinct. And then you can think of the whole figure being reproduced from that one part uh, and just duplicate it in two times or four times or whatever. And so that's where the idea of laziness comes in. I would call it more frugality of effort, perhaps. That's more respectable. But nature figures that, okay, I've already done this work. Let's see if I can just save myself some trouble and just flip things or reproduce things or duplicate things instead of designing something anew uh, to complete the whole figure. Yeah, there's something called Occam's Razor philosophy, or I guess uh, Greek philosophy, that the simpler explanation is usually the correct one or the simplest. Right. And so it's a little bit like that applied to creation. You know, the simplest version is going to work best. And, and there's certain uh, other advantages if you're trying to, if you have a sphere, for example, that shape comes up in so many different applications where there's the symmetry uh, in terms of laws, physics laws, which would hold uniformly in all directions rather than being changed as you grow from one part of space into another. So the fact that space is undifferentiated, you can think of that also in terms of symmetry, in the sense that you can fold space on itself and it won't change things. You can translate space, and uh, if it's all undifferentiated, that doesn't change things. And therefore, any physics laws that are true in one part of space would be true in other parts as well. You do a, a very interesting uh, exercise with, with with Mona Lisa's face, where you say, you know, is it beautiful because it's symmetrical? And then you show if it were perfectly symmetrical. And actually, you could do this to any any face, a real face too, not just a painted face. It looks hideous when it's too symmetrical, which is really interesting because, in general, people judge faces as more beautiful when they're more symmetrical. But if they were perfectly symmetrical, then they become ugly. Well, that's in terms of bilateral symmetry. Yes, bilateral symmetry. Yeah. But then when you start making more duplications and taking pieces of it and, uh, you know, duplicating it so that they're little slivers of the same pattern that are perhaps joined in the form of a circle, then you get a kind of blended form of symmetry that actually grows quite pleasing. It's more like a flower shape or something like that. 
but the original face is totally lost. Yes, and I, I, I tried that with Trump, for example, his face, and, <laughs> and it got really, you know, non-threatening. You could even hang it on the wall, and it would be quite pleasing. And you could show each of your dinner guests, so here I have a picture of Trump hanging on my wall. What? Yes, and, and if, if you like Trump, then maybe Biden, I don't know. But that's kind of interesting. As you said, you could do it to any face. So do you have any thoughts about why it, uh, an, an overly symmetrical face would be ugly? Is it just that it's there's something so unnatural looking about it? Or what, what is it exactly? Well, I'm not sure what the reason is, but I did look up some papers that uh, this, this is a big thing in plastic surgery now. They're trying to figure out what exactly would be the best form of design in terms of a face. And they look at the papers that look at two aspects in particular. One is how closely a face is uh, to the golden ratio, ratio 1.618. And people claim that the, the distance between your nose and your lips should be a certain value and the distance between your eyes and your lips should be something. So they've done experiments with that and research on that and found that it really depends. It's very different across cultures and there's no real correlation that they can find in terms of attractiveness and that ratio. And they've done similar things with symmetry and found again that, as you said, the face, you know, if it's completely symmetric, it's not necessarily that interesting. And so maybe that's what it is. It's not interesting that your gaze just kind of goes from one side to the other. I don't know. It's almost as if the symmetry has to be subliminal. If it's too symmetrical, then the attention is drawn to that and that maybe detracts. It's, it's sort of like what I've heard about computer-generated art or music that somehow it is too mathematical, too perfect, and that detracts from it somehow. So I thought in this last segment, I'd like to talk about infinity. It's a very juicy topic, I guess you could say. I'm not sure if that's the right adjective. But you, you write, physics, as we just saw in the previous section, also depends on endlessness. Otherwise, not just space, but also time would terminate at some point. For all we know, space-time is still forming, expanding, much like the never-ending generation of the naturals. What this would imply is that while space and time are finite at any instant lived by us, if this endless expansion were ever completed, their limit would be infinite. I, I love this. I mean, it's just so interesting because I, I think before reading this, I thought, well, you either have things that are finite or you have things that are infinite. And of course, that's mind bending because you can't really, you can only conceive of something continually growing. But if time is sort of is, is another dimension, then what infinity means is that it never stops, literally never stops. Not that it's already there already. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I think the key is what exactly happened in terms of the Big Bang. If you go back to that theory, that's when space sort of started expanding and started forming, actually. Uh, what is space? Well, the best answer I've got is it's something that helps separate different objects. And remember that space and time are both starting at that point. And so it's not just that space was all, always there or that time stretched to infinity we are in some sense perhaps still experiencing that expansion that comes both in space and in time. And, you know, it, it, it raises the question about what about the edge? You know, if, if at any particular moment the universe were finite but is expanding, you know, where, where's the edge? And, and, and I think you talk about this a little bit about the possibility of curvature of space, and that's a 
I think, fairly well-known concept in, in physics that maybe the three dimensions is inscribed onto a fourth, and so there is no edge. But another way that there is no edge is if it's still expanding, and if you can't really get to the edge, <laughs> then it doesn't matter. Right. So, so I have to, um, in this book, I have to kind of move away from pure physics in the sense that in physics, as you just said, uh, things might still be expanding. In mathematics, we are trying to lay down what would be the completed universe, the completed time dimension, uh, just to be able to understand it and to be able to create it. And that, that's something that we saw already in day two, where when you talk about religion, God just creates everything, but doesn't really set up a stage, an empty space to actually contain all these creations. So mathematicians, I think, are very concerned with having that empty stage, that empty matrix of points there. And so if things were expanding, both in time and in space, we would actually want to lay down the empty space, the empty time dimension that stretches to infinity. And that's what we are trying to understand. Now, whether that is applicable to reality, that's a separate question. But again, mathematics wants to deal with, you know, this world that this, this idea that we can think about this completed region. And, and one of the things that comes up is, is it really going to be infinite? And that's a question in the sense that if you look at a sphere, for example, the surface of a sphere is not infinite. It's finite. If you look at a plane, on the other hand, that is infinite. Now, there are possibilities that our space might actually have a tiny bit of curvature in it. We haven't been able to completely eliminate that possibility in terms of physics experiments. If it did have that curvature, then uh, it would be a three-dimensional analog of a sphere and could conceivably be curling back on itself and therefore being finite. So there's all these subtle possibilities that exist. And then you also talk about a uh, comparison of infinities. Like infin infinities can be bigger than other infinities, which is really, I think, pretty pretty advanced stuff. And yet you you get to it in your book, you know, that the comparing the counting numbers, the the uh, integers with the with real numbers, with including fractions, you can actually map them one to the other, so they're actually the same. So that's that's one of the weirdest things that if you look at all the fractions, as actually the same number of fractions as there are whole numbers, which uh, you can actually do a counting argument that uh, the mathematician uh, Cantor, uh, George Cantor, came up with uh, many years ago. Uh, what he also found was that if you started including irrational numbers like pi or the square root of two, numbers that go on forever, then you actually end up with a higher infinity which is something that cannot be measured in terms of the lower infinity of counting numbers. And this is something that we might actually experience in the sense that if you think about time being made up of a whole infinity of instants connected with each other, then we live through each instant. But if you try to say that, okay, here is one second of time, Let's list all the instants, the first instant, the second instant, the third instant. You won't be able to do it. And the reason for that is 
that there is a higher infinity of instance in that one second than there is in the numbering one, two, three, four. And so you, you cannot enumerate all the instance in one second. And then once you get that idea, then you can actually create even higher infinities, which we don't even experience. So it's, it's fascinating that mathematics has these endless vistas or questions. You, you get to something and then there's a whole new field that opens up for you. And so it, it's good to know that as a mathematician, my work will never be done. There's always going to be other questions. Then there's another example of infinity. You talk about the crystal ball irrational number. The technical name for that is Champernon's constant, and uh, you construct it as follows. You start with a zero, and then you put a decimal point, and then you take the number one, then you put in the number two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. You, you list all the integers after that. So you have the number 0 0.1234, and it goes on and on. And that's going to be uh, an irrational number. And, and just to stop there just for a second, just for people who aren't uh, familiar with irrational numbers, one way to conceive of it is that unlike the integers or the, or, the uh, or fractions, that there's no repetition when expressed as a decimal form, that it's, it's completely random, whether it's pi or square root of 2, that it just goes on and on and on. You can never find a pattern that can be repeated. Exactly, because if you look at a fraction like one-third, it is 0.333333, and any other fraction you would get some... A string of digits that just keeps repeating. But for pi or square root of 2, you get something that you can't really predict in any way what the next string will be. There is no string that keeps repeating. Right, and, and that was what was so upsetting to the ancient Greeks. Yes, that, that you know, you could have your head, or you could, have be, you could be drowned if you uh, raise that possibility. Yeah, so getting back to the crystal ball uh, number, so you have uh, zero point, and then you just keep counting the uh, counting numbers, one, two, three, four, five, six, and so that you have every possible number is within this number. Exactly, and, and here comes the fun part. When I was a kid, and I, I suspect many other people too, uh, played these games where you developed a code where uh, the letter A was equal to 1, the letter B was equal to 2, the letter C was equal to 3, and so on. And so you could make up things like cab, uh, C-A-B, which would be in code 3 followed by 1 followed by 2. So cab was the same thing as the integer 312. And conceivably, you could do that for every word and convert long chains of words and sentences into integers. So you could say, hey, you know, here's a book. I can take everything in this book, I can convert it into this code, and I will get one long chain of numbers, which will be a whole number. Now, if you look at that crystal ball number and you try to search for one of these coded words, like the word cab, you would certainly find it. It would be, you just go up to 312. It would be 312th integer that's been listed. So you would definitely find it there. But by the same token, if you have some long book and have, that has been converted into a long integer, if you go far enough, you will come to that integer. So you could claim that, hey, that book is entirely in this list of numbers, in this crystal ball number. Yeah, so it could be a it could be a ten thousand digit number, and there it is. Yeah, and War and Peace, for example, I'm not sure how many digits you would get for that. Probably more than ten thousand, many, many, many more than ten thousand, but it would be there in this number. And so you find that all possible information 
you could argue, is actually encapsulated in this number. It's somewhere along the line. The problem, of course, is you don't know where to look. So you don't know where war and peace starts, and you could be searching for a long time without finding it. You also would find all sorts of variations on war and peace, uh, where some character has been killed off, perhaps, and that's in there as a separate number, so you won't be able to tell which one is which. But it is interesting to think of this this as a kind of like a flash drive or something which has all the information ever that would ever be created in this world in that one number. Right, including things that haven't been written yet. Yes. Everything. And, yes. And everything things. that can possibly, in fact, everything that can possibly be written is in that number. Exactly. Now, here is the interesting thing, though. Mathematicians have shown that almost every irrational number is similar to that. For example, pi, the square root of 2. All of these numbers, too, have the same property whereby everything that is ever going to be written or ever has been written is in that number. It's just not in, in order. It's just not in order. It's, like a, it's a metaphor for, I think, the information age where you have so much information everywhere, but the key is, can you find what you want as you're overloaded by this avalanche? Can you actually find something that you're looking for? So if we can just sort of circle all the way back to the beginning again for a moment. There are tribes in this world that don't have much concept of quantity. So for instance, the, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing this right, but a Piraha tribe in the Amazon has a concept of one, two, maybe three, and many. Right. And they don't seem to even understand one-to-one -one correspondence, which is the way we were comparing infinities, for instance. And it's the way even very young children in our culture will compare which, is, which set is larger, in which set of blocks, let's say, or whatever, or toys. But somehow they seem to get along okay without almost any math at all. Okay. How is that possible? Well, um, I guess for many centuries, humans did the same thing. If you look back at you know, our prehistoric ancestors, they were the first people who were trying to express these mathematical feelings. And if you see some of these prehistoric kind of primitive art, you will see that they're trying to express things like area or a circle or a triangle or a square. And these were already fascinating things for them. So I, I think this is something that's always fascinated me about mathematics. There are two main drivers of it. One is simply that you need mathematics in order to make progress in terms of technology. So those kinds of needs are what drives a lot of progress. So if you haven't uh, made that leap into a technological society, then maybe your math is still not as developed. But the other thing that happens is that there is something in at least some people's minds where they're looking with curiosity at things like symmetry or order or quantity. And these are only expressed, I feel, with mathematics. They might not have the language yet to be able to express them, but I'm sure that at least some of them probably have these thoughts. Babies, for instance, are known to be able to differentiate between one and two. So they're inborn, they have that inborn trait. And I think some animals have also been shown to have that numerical trait. 
So it's, it's again, it kind of boils down in a way to whether math is something that exists or is it something that we create? Is it something that arises naturally in our brain? Has it come through evolution? Or is it something that, you know, each of us discovers for ourselves? And I don't know the answer. So, and you alluded uh, a moment ago to the usefulness of math for creating technology. So that's one way to approach math is, is how useful it is in the real world. And the other is the one that we've talked about throughout this interview about how playful it can be and, and enjoyable as a form of play. And, and you just use a, a, a phrase, mathematical feelings, which is, um, I think, a phrase that not too many people use. Uh-huh. Uh, what, what do you mean by it? I think what I'm talking about is the appreciation of math. I feel that, again, neurologically speaking, and I don't know much about that, but I feel that parts in your brain are probably excited or uh, have pleasurable uh, reactions when you think about certain things, certain shapes that might be pleasing, certain quantities that are interesting. Uh, I know that each time you kind of factor uh, one uh, number divided by another, cancel the common factors. You know, I used to always get a sense of accomplishment or pleasure that, oh, I found a common factor and I'm actually striking it out. So I think there are things like that 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 I think about as mathematical emotions or feelings that are uh, that come up when you actually perform mathematics or somehow appreciate it. So there's a, the pleasure in, in solving a puzzle, in a sense, and there's also a sense of uh, aesthetics. Yes, exactly. You know, when things are balancing out the way they're supposed to balance out and, and seeing new structures uh, emerge from what you're doing. Yes, I feel so. I feel that is true. I feel that mathematics is, again, one way of describing all of these things, all of these feelings. And it's perhaps the most off-putting for some people, for a lot of people, perhaps, because uh, because of all the calculations that could be involved, because of the way it's expressed in terms of algebra and other notation, and because of the way that it's hard to get across. So it might not be taught very well, but it's still just one way to express some of these things. Uh, another might be to look at art and uh, talk about what emotions it evokes. And I feel math too can evoke emotions. Well, this has been a really interesting conversation. I re- really enjoyed your book. It really brought back a lot of good memories for me because I, I, I did enjoy math uh, growing up. And I did have a sense of, of wonder uh, and I didn't worry so much about application so much. So I, I think I was lucky in that respect. Not everybody is. I'm hoping that uh, people who read your book will be inspired by it and maybe take another look at math as something that actually can be a source of enjoyment. Yes, I, I hear the Pope is reading it right now. <laughs> right. Wonderful. Well, well, thank you. This was great. Yeah, so... Uh, Manil Suri, mathematics professor, internationally acclaimed novelist, author of the recently published book, The Big Bang of Numbers, How to Build the Universe Using Only Math. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you for having me. Thanks. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, 
and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.